Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This week we are talking about Apollinarianism and Neo-Apollinarianism, um, specifically in relation to the Christian apologist William Lane Craig. Uh, and I'll tell you why we're talking about that here in a second. But before we begin, remember that Christ is the Cure is subscriber-supported and we still need people to join the support team. Um, this is what makes the show go on. This is what allows me to put the time and effort into it. And ideally I would like to expand and make this more than what it currently is. So I try to put out free PDFs, graphics, and try to make quality over quantity, right? And that's really what you do as a patron. If, if you enjoy crisis Secure, if you enjoy what I'm trying to do here, if you enjoy the topics we talk about and how we talk about it, and you want to support the free materials for everyone else, uh, then consider becoming a patron. So pray about it, um, become familiar with me and my work, and um, you know, weigh and measure whether or not you think this is something worth supporting, and you feel led, then become a patron. And there are some perks, um, you know, being a patron, uh, I can't tell you to bank on those perks because I do my best, but I'm kind of juggling, you know, multiple things at once, but there's, there's perks for being a patron, including some patron-exclusive courses, and uh, you get early content, you get some PDFs that people don't get, you get um, show notes that some people don't get, and, and stuff like that. So there are some perks, but really it's about whether or not you believe in what we're doing here and you think it's worth supporting and that it's beneficial uh, to the church. And yeah, that, that's really what it is. So today we're talking about Neo-Apollinarianism and Apollinarianism, William Lane Craig. Um, next week, we will talk about the uh, Christ is the law, and that might be one or two parts. And then we're going to go on break for you know about a month because I'm going to be uh, doing stuff for patrons. I'm going to be prepping stuff. Um, I also have my my ten year anniversary coming up, and so I'm focusing on my wife. And then whenever we come back um, in, in January or February, I'm not sure when, we're going to start a series going through Tulip of Calvinism. But the way we're doing it is we're using Tulip as the framework, and we'll be going through each point and surveying different views. So um, we'll go through T, like total depravity, and then we'll compare Calvinism on total depravity, Arminianism on total depravity. Um, I may go into um, looking at how uh, Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, I haven't decided yet. So I need to work all that out. I need to map it. I need to plan it. But that's going to be a, our longer series for uh, the spring, if you want to call it that. And then after that, we're going to do a shorter series on the Lord's Supper. And then I have a few other episodes on the docket. But the, but the big one is going to be that Tulip series, which people may think that that's a Calvinism series. And it kind of is because it's using the Calvinistic acronym as like the baseline. But that's just how it makes sense in my head to organize it. But I'll have it labeled so you can go through and pick it. And I'm trying to decide whether or not I'm going to break it up for like have all the T's together or whether or not I'm going to put um, all the T's in one episode. I'll figure it out, and I'll let you guys know. Um, so that's what you can expect coming back, um, along with you know stuff I do on the side. Like I've been doing PDFs on uh, Christian cults, and that should be published by the time this episode airs and stuff like that. Um, for William Lane Craig and Neo-Apollinarianism, this actually came up in a uh, gracious, I think it was a Q&A on Instagram, and people were curious about it. And so I was like, well, I'll, I'll do an episode of this instead of one on canonic Christology, because I wrote an article on canonic Christology, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll turn that into an episode. But really, there, there wasn't a point, and there were some other reasons why I was like, mm, nah. So, I figured we'd talk about Apollinarianism. So, 
let's get into it. And I think that's probably one of the longest like pre-episode sessions I've had. Um, I, I usually try to avoid that for you guys so I can jump right into it. But I wanted to make sure that I'm, I'm at least promoting Patron because one of the big issues was that I don't like promoting stuff like that. And so I never did. So now I'm trying to remember to put it in at least every other episode or something like that. And I just spent a little bit more time on it than I anticipated. Let's talk about what Apollinarianism is to begin with. So in the 4th century, which is AD 315 to 392, you're talking over the time of both Nicaea in 325 and Constantinople in 381, which if you don't remember those, you can go check out the Through Nicaea series and the historical background on those. But during that time, 315 to 392, lived a leader named Apollinarianus. Um, and he was a defender of the deity of Christ and orthodoxy as understood at Nicaea in 325. Now, he is noted to be a good friend of one of the champions of orthodoxy, Athanasius. We've talked about Athanasius quite a bit at this point. But eventually, Athanasius and the Cappadocians, if you don't remember, the Cappadocians are major figures in terms of uh, helping articulate the finer points of the Council of Nicaea's um, creed. And they would be instrumental in forming the revised creed of 381. And so the Cappadocians, there are two Gregs, Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa, and then Basil the Great. Well, they opposed Apollinarius as well for his view on Christ's human nature. So Athanasius and I believe it was Gregory of Nazianzus were actually friends with Apollinarianus. And then eventually they would come to oppose him because of how he started articulating orthodoxy or what he saw as orthodoxy from the Council of Nicaea. So, what was Apollinarius's issue? Well, Apollinarius affirmed that God the Son was of the same essence of the Father and fully God. So far, so good. But where he erred was in saying that the Son, when he became incarnate, that is, whenever he took on flesh, because incarnate means enfleshed, whenever he took on a human nature, he, he took on a human body, but he didn't take on a human soul, specifically a rational soul. And that's going to be really one of the keys of this whole episode. So for Apollinarianus, he didn't add to himself a human soul, but instead the divine word, son, or logos, right, replaces or, or fills the place of the rational soul in the human flesh. And so this led to also a, a notion of Christ having one nature. It's a composite nature, uh, which would be rejected officially by Chalcedon and then by Constantinople III, uh, and this is called miaphysis um, in contemporary language. It's called monophysis in, um, in its historical sense, but people say that that's a little bit of a straw man, so mia is the way that it's articulated now. So the church, when they heard this view of Apollinarius, that the divine logos is what fills the place of the soul in the human flesh, rejected it. Um, and really... Here's the key um, for anyone listening to this episode. If you want to help yourself remember all these debates on Christology that occurred from 325 to, to 451 to 553 and so forth, um, the key is to remember this axiom of Gregory of Nazianzus. Quote, what is not assumed is not healed. And why is that? Well, because this simply points out the fact that for Christ to be our true representative, to be a true man, and to truly heal us, he must assume everything that makes up the human nature. That includes body and a rational soul. If Christ did not assume 
a human soul, if Christ did not assume a human mind, if Christ did not take on human flesh, and so forth, then it was not healed. And so you have to have the complete human nature for Christ to be completely human. And hopefully that follows. So if you want to think about Christology as you, you know, go through life and you're like, I don't have time to read through, uh, you know, the Acts of Constantinople 2 or 3. I don't have time to read through uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, just at least spend some time reading the definition of Chalcedon and remembering that what is not assumed is not healed. And so this means that Christ had two minds. He had the divine mind. He had the human mind. He had two wills. He had the divine will. He had the human will. He must have assumed every component of what it means to be human. And those things are properties of human nature. To be human is to have not only flesh, but to have a rational soul, to have a mind, to have emotions, to have um, a, a will, to have so on and so forth. Um, so hopefully that can help you navigate future discussions. And that's really what it what it comes down to whenever you start moving into other controversies about the one will or two wills of Christ. Uh, the position has been officially two wills of Christ. And so whenever you're talking about Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's struggling in his will, you know, with the idea of going to the cross, you're like, well, how does that make sense? Well, he has a human will and he has the divine will. And the articulation has always been that the human will follows the divine will but he still has that human will and he still acts through that human will and is still the person of the son. All this is still happening to the person of the son, but in accordance with his natures. Um, and so that's, that's crucial. And really, um, I'm going to say this again at the end of the episode, but if you want a go-to one-stop shop book that goes through all of this, get God, the son incarnate by Stephen Willem. I'm going to recommend that book till I die probably because it really is fantastic. Um, so let's talk again about this issue. So the church rejected Apollinaris because he rejected the idea that Christ assumed a rational soul, but instead the Logos was the rational soul in the human flesh. So the rejection of Apollinarianism would move into affirming that again, there are two natures and the active subject of those two natures is the single person of Christ. It rejected what is called a word flesh paradigm. Instead, it affirmed that Christ had a human soul, which includes a will, mind, and general psychology. Um, to quote the historian Richard Price from his introduction on uh, the Council of Ephesus of 431, Apollinarius, quote, proposed a schema by which the divine word in effect replaced the human mind, the seat of cognition, volition, and the higher faculties of the soul, in the person of Jesus Christ, end quote. And so you would have Apollinarius being rejected as early as 381 at the Council of Constantinople, and the name of Apollinarius would be utilized as a means of polemics for Nestorius, who was um, attacking this title of Mary of Theotokos, meaning God-bearer. And he would say that this title indicated a revival of Arianism and Apollinarianism. Of course, the polemics were exaggerated. Uh, this is how polemics worked back then. But nonetheless, it shows how pressing the issue of Apollinarius was uh, because it could be evoked as a scare tactic, if I could put it in contemporary language. So the Council of Constantinople rejected Apollinarius in 381. The Council of Ephesus in 431 uh, works from that as per the Council of 381. So it presupposed that condemnation and position of Apollinarianism. And then, of course, this would be the context leading into Chalcedon, uh, and that would be the Christological definition that came out of Chalcedon in 451. And if you don't know, 
Um, whenever we talk about the hypostatic union, one person, two natures without mixture or confusion, but inseparable, that comes from Chalcedon. So you likely assume Chalcedon's general framework if you've taken a theology class or if you've read a theology book on Christology, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the definition that was hammered out in Chalcedon, um, which for the people of Chalcedon, they saw this as just an expression of the Council of Nicaea. They didn't see it as adding a new creed. In fact, they were, they were really hesitant to even put together the definition because they, they didn't think that you needed to add to it. But this is just clarifying what the position of Nicaea was for these um, church figures. Um, the definition of Chalcedon reaffirmed what had been condemned by stating that Christ was, quote, truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial that is sharing in the same nature with us, according to his manhood, in all things like unto us. So Chalcedon rejects the idea that the Son, or the Logos, that is the divine word, replaces the human soul, and claims instead that he was truly man with a human will and mind, which, would, of course, like I said earlier, would be further and more explicitly stated at the Sixth Ecumenical Council in 681, which is Constantinople III. Um, so it would be stated that, logically, by necessity, Christ would have two wills, the divine and human will. So now that you know what Apollinarianism, and, you know, William like Craig will describe Apollinarianism, but in a way that's, that's not really sufficient to the historical data, right? So Neo-Apollinarianism, which Neo means new, right? Neo-Apollinarianism is a position posited by William Lane Craig, um, who, again, is a... he He's a good apologist for general classic... Or no. He's a good apologist for general theism. I'll, I'll say that. Um, he, he's a sharp guy. There, there's there's no two ways about it. He, he's a great philosopher. Um, I would say he's not the best theologian. Um, but it's easy to say that sitting over here. Um, and I, and I want to start this episode by saying he has done a lot of good. Uh, he has also said things that are really questionable. Um, at the same time on this issue, I want to make it clear that I'm not saying that he is actively heretical, but that he is positing a heretical view, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Okay. So, um, that, that's really what I want to say here. And I think that that makes a big difference between, uh, you know, heresy and just ignorance or um, I think that would be the difference. Ignorance sounds kind of insulting, but nonetheless. So Neo-Apollinarianism is the position posited by William Lane Craig. And he, he says that this is a possible Christological model. And so he, he stresses that this isn't a model he holds to, but it's one that's a possibility. Uh, and so this, this kind of lets him have that out. Uh, but he's been teaching it. He teaches it in his book, and he teaches it in an interview I watched um, from, from a YouTube video of 2017. And then there's an article on Reasonable Faith. I think it's Reasonable Faith. Yeah, the Reasonable Faith podcast where he talks about it. And he says that this is his proposal of a possible sensical articulation of Chalcedon and of Christology that someone could assume, but he doesn't assume it. He doesn't officially take a position on it. That's how it's kind of framed. Um, I would argue that this is not a possible Christological model if one is going to adhere to Orthodox Christology, such as Chalcedon. Um, and I'm going to discuss why. So on the Reasonable Faith podcast with William Lane Craig, uh, there's an episode called, Does Dr. Craig Have an Orthodox Christology? You can find this in article form. You can find it in audio form. I picked the article form. It's just easier. 
because uh, I can copy and paste it and, and work through it that way. Um, so we hear more about this proposal. And he does expand on this proposal in a book that I'm going to reference. Um, but it's really just a longer explanation that is the same thing. And um, a sidebar, really, is that I was disappointed to find that my alma mater, which is Talbot, uh, I did my master's at Biola, uh, which I have some issues with the direction that Biola is going, but I had some wonderful professors who radically just impacted uh, my life um, and will always be near and dear. But Craig is a is faculty at Talbot, I think, in philosophy. And my alma mater found that um, his proposal was concerning. And so the Department of Theology was concerned over it. But the Dean of Theology essentially said that uh, the view is no problem as it is not one that Craig holds. So that lets him get that out. And then he says, but is just offering a possibility to defeat objectors to the Christian faith. The problem is that um, the Dean of Theology should know better that this is not a possibility if if you care about historical Christology. And that's really um, an issue with some of the apologetics that you see, is that um, often apologetics will abandon proper theology and offer different theological propositions to make the faith more palatable or understandable to the human mind. Uh, and I don't think that's a good way to do things. And I certainly don't think that we should be offering a heretical position as a theological possibility for apologetic purposes. Um, I think that um, the the famous quote, what you win them with is what you win them to, is, is really telling here. If you win them to uh, a bad theological position, um, and then they come to find out that it's heresy, well, that's going to rock their faith if they did come to the faith. So here's how William Lane Craig outlines his position and then explains it. So I'm going to quote William Lane Craig at length here, and then I am going to talk about it. So, quote, um, he outlines three points. We agree with the Council of Chalcedon that in Christ we have one person with two natures, human and divine. Two, the soul of the human nature of Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. The human nature of Christ is composed of the Logos and the human body. Uh, three, the divine aspects of the Logos are largely concealed in Christ's subconsciousness so that he had a waking conscious life that would be typical of any human being. And that, like the mass of an iceberg submerged beneath the surface, so in his divine subconsciousness there lay the fullness of deity. Uh, the waking consciousness was typically human. And so whenever he's asked to clarify about Apollinarius' view and his view, he says, right, Apollinarius' original view was that Christ didn't have a complete human nature. He had a human body, but he didn't have a human soul. He didn't have a human nature. As a result, he wasn't really truly human. And that calls into question the reality of the Incarnation and also the effectiveness of Christ's death on our behalf since he did not share our nature. What I argue in my Neo-Apollinarianism proposal is that the Logos brought to the human body just those properties which would make it a complete human nature, things like rationality, self-consciousness, freedom of the will, and so forth. Christ already possessed those in his divine nature, and it is in virtue of those that we are created in the image of God. So when he brought those properties to the animal body, the human body, it completes and makes a human nature. Against Apollinarius, I want to say that Christ did have a complete human nature. He was truly God and truly man. Therefore, his death on our behalf as a representative before God was efficacious. All right, so if you heard that and you kept in mind all the stuff I said before we went into Craig's view, you you can see the problem. So there's a number of issues. And the first one is that Craig's assessment 
should be rejected on the same grounds that Apollinaris's view was rejected for. Remember that Apollinaris was rejected because he proposed a schema by which the divine word, in effect, replaced the human mind, the seat of cognition, volition, and the higher faculties of the soul, and the person of Jesus Christ. This is the same thing that Craig is proposing. Um, I'm not really sure what distinction he sees beyond beyond that, because he says that Apollinaris' original view was a Christ that didn't have a complete human nature. He had a human body, but didn't have a human soul. He didn't have a human nature. As a result, he wasn't truly human. Um, and he says, what I argue is that the Logos brought to the human body just those properties which would make it a complete human nature. Things like rationality, self-consciousness, freedom of the will, and so forth. If you think about what Craig just said, he just said that without the Logos, the human nature was not complete. Therefore, the Logos didn't take on a complete human nature. Instead, he formed a complete human nature by supplementing what the human nature was lacking. That same issue as Apollinarianism. Um, um, let's see. So as we go through these points in a little bit more detail, we'll likely end up repeating some things. So apologies for that, but then again, it might be helpful because some of this can be confusing. So his first point is fine, right? His first point was... Um, we agree with the Council of Chalcedon that Christ, we have one person and two natures, human and divine. Now, th that's fine on the surface, uh, because the problem is that William Lane Craig operates with a different definition of what a person entails. And I believe that Stephen Wellham talks about this in his book, too. Uh, but you can find this in Craig and Moreland's work, The Philosophical Foundations. But for Craig and Moreland, person is the center of consciousness that includes knowledge, mind, will, and action. This is a different definition of person as they were understanding it in Chalcedon. And this is mostly seen, again, in that work of philosophical foundations. In that same work, they argue that Christ does not replace an existing human soul, but becomes the soul of Christ's human body. Uh, really, it's, it's a distinction with little difference. The issue is that this is not in accordance with Chalcedon. So Craig says that he can affirm Chalcedon, but he can't really, uh, because it would reject the idea that the word became the soul of Christ's human body. Instead, Chalcedon affirms that the Son added a human nature, which was the addition of a human body and a rational soul. That's what the position of Chalcedon was, and at this point, like we said, Apollinarianism was rejected at uh, the Council of 381, and also uh, 431 with all the preliminary documents to uh, Chalcedon, and then 451 at Chalcedon, and then, of course, as you go forward, it was already assumed. Uh, so Craig also openly proposed what is called monothletism, which is a logical expression of this position, and that is the idea that Christ had one will, and that was rejected again at Constantinople three. And you would have to hold that position because you believe that the will comes from the seat of consciousness, which is the soul of the human flesh. Um, and that, of course, is the divine logos. So to state it again, Christology of Chalcedon never would have accepted the idea that Christ was the human soul in the human body. It's really this, it's really Apollinarianism. Um, but instead, that they would say that the person of the Son assumed a concrete human nature of body and rational soul. And of course, rational soul in that context are those th components that Craig argues the divine nature brought to the human nature. Um, so when Craig and Moreland state that the Logos completes the individual human nature of Christ by furnishing it with a rational soul, which is the Logos himself, this is not in agreement with Chalcedon. It creates a problem. It, it says that the human nature was not a complete human nature until the Logos filled in those gaps. Uh, Craig's second point. Craig says, quote, The soul of the human nature of Christ is the second person of the Trinity. 
the Logos. The human nature of Christ is composed of the Logos and a human body. Notice that this is, of course, exactly the charge against Apollinarianism, and this deprives the Son of having a truly human nature body with rational soul. Instead, we have a composite. The human nature of Christ is the composition of the Logos filling in those gaps in the human flesh. Um, so this makes one nature, not two natures, whenever you start really getting into the nitty-gritty of it. But it's because of the way that he starts defining terms that he can argue for two natures in one person. And so, really, whether knowingly or unknowingly, Craig is saying that he agrees with Chalcedon, but he's changing all the language to say that he can agree with Chalcedon. And I, that's just not how you do things. There, there's a context to it. Um, so what he argues in his Neo-Polinarianism position is that the Logos brought to the human body those properties that would make it a complete human nature, rationality, self-consciousness, freedom of the will, and so forth. Um, so notice that Craig's position isn't Neo-Polinarianism, but it's just Apollinarianism. Apollinarius denied that the Logos had assumed a human mind or a rational soul, and instead the Logos served as the mind of the incarnate Christ. Really, this begins to break down in how Craig understands the definition of various terms. Like I said, persons, natures, uh, and for Craig, nature is a set of attributes. So that, again, it's working with a different definition. I do also think that there should have been a little bit more hesitation to even call this idea neo-polyanarism, but I have to commend the honesty here, right? Now, like I said, um, this idea of a composite that... The Logos brought to the human body those properties which would make it a complete human uh, nature um, is also a violation of Chalcedon because Chalcedon rejected the idea of blending two human natures into one, which is the logical ramification of this proposal, um, especially in terms of the historical understanding of Chalcedon. Now, I'm going to quote the Reformed Arsenal's summary. I'll link the article in the, in the description, uh, but I thought it was a good summary of the problem. Quote, while Apollinarianists argue that the Logos was the mind or rational soul of Christ, Neo-Apollinarianism argues that the entire immaterial component of Christ is the Logos. So it goes a little bit further. The quote continues, what was assumed in the incarnation was a body. The result is a Christ, contrary to scripture, that is very much unlike us. See Hebrews 2.17. His mind is infinite, but my mind is finite. His spirit is eternal, but my spirit is created. His will is immutable, but my will is mutable. Only if, as the Chalcedon definition argues, Christ takes on a complete human nature, can this be resolved. Christ must take on a finite human mind, a created human spirit, and a mutable human will in order to be our great high priest. Um, and that's reformedarsenal.com, William Lane Craig, Neo-Apollinarianism. Uh, and I believe that's a series of articles. I'm not really sure how good the other ones are. Uh, but I found that summary helpful. Now, what's interesting is that there are other questions that can arise about this view overall that aren't really addressed in, in their book and in this article and in this podcast that I listened to on YouTube. I can't remember who the author is. Forgive me. If you look it up on YouTube, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, there, it's really not cleared up. And I believe that Craig falls into the, the category of functional canonic Christology. And I talked about why you got to be careful, you know, saying that that's an error in itself. Um, but really, the, the big question is, how does this consciousness in Christ work where he has this divine aspect being concealed in Christ's subconscious that acts for this type of split consciousness? If you have this divine logos filling in these properties, 
that were missing from the human body, such as the human will, uh, rationality, and freedom, then doesn't this mean that the divine person suffered change in this split consciousness, meaning that he's no longer mutable or impassable, but instead he has this split consciousness, and logically, that means that the divine nature took on change. It changed in this incarnation. And that's another issue that's been um, been dealt with in church history. So there are a number of questions about Craig's presentation. Um, but but where, what is clear is that his view is just Apollinarianism. Um, and it should not be considered a possible model if we take seriously historical theology and what Chalcedon says. If we're going to say that we agree with Chalcedon, then we have to agree with Chalcedon and what it said and what it attended within its historical context. Um, that said, the issue of one makes nature can also be um, you know discussed. Um, but I have a hard time. I have a hard time squaring it all together, really. Um, so I I don't find any clarifications helpful. At the end of the day, you can say, well, Craig doesn't actually hold that position. He just says it's a possible potential model. That said, I'm left wondering, well, what is the model he holds to? If that's not the model he holds to. Anyway, um, so like I said, anyone who wants to go into more detail about these issues of Christology, God the Son incarnate by Stephen Wellham um, is fantastic. And like I said, I believe he talks about Craig Moreland, uh, specifically in the subject of uh, canonic Christologies, but he goes through uh, he goes through the the narrative of redemption and how that informs Christology. Then he goes into the biblical theology. He goes through historical theology, and then he also goes through contemporary issues such as canonic Christologies. And then he goes through articulating and answering questions in the contemporary setting. And it's just really probably the best book on Christology that I've read. And I know there's a lot of classics out there, and I know that saying probably more than it should be, but it also, um, regardless of how you feel about the gospel coalition, it, they do have, um, good articles and stuff like that every so often. And one of the good things they have are lectures by Stephen Wellham that go along with this book for free. Um, and I think that that's pretty cool. Um, so that's it for this episode. Hopefully it was interesting enough and it was helpful as you start thinking through Christology yourself. Um, like I said, next week, we're gonna be talking about a little bit more Christology in terms of the idea of whether or not the statement Christ is the law is theologically accurate or even possible, or if it's heretical. Um, so we're going to be discussing that at great length, um, and it should be interesting. And that's going to act as our like Christmas special for the year because it has to do with the incarnation. We have two Christology episodes, maybe multiple episodes, because I don't know if the next one's going to be one or two parts. Um, so that's kind of cool. Maybe we'll do that around Christmas time next year. Um, yeah, that said, you guys have a great and wonderful weekend and God bless you all.